We are in Matthew chapter 27. We'd love for you to read along as we go through these verses tonight in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27, uh, Matthew 27, 27. Death by crucifixion was perhaps the worst possible means of death in the ancient world. That's because it was designed to exact the greatest amount of pain and to delay death as long as possible. A victim would languish in pain. Uh, unable to die, they would experience muscle spasms, asphyxiation, loss of blood, and that could go on for days. The Romans did not invent crucifixion. Uh, the Persians did, but the Romans did perfect it. And they used it as their chief means of execution for the very worst kinds of criminals, uh, those who they considered slaves uh, or anyone who was not a Roman citizen. They, they considered them a non-person. And it was re reserved for the very worst of those they considered to be non-persons, uh, those who had committed murder or armed robbery, uh, revolutionary activity, or insurrection. Those were the principal crimes for which crucifixion was utilized by the Roman government. And Pontius Pilate sentenced Jesus to death, the death of crucifixion, under those rules, under those laws. Now, when we talk about the cross, we often discuss the human suffering and the grueling pain. That's from a human perspective that we think about it. You can get graphic and talk about the medical and biological aspects of someone who is crucified, and we will look at that tonight. Uh, we can try to understand what the human body does during that time. But more importantly is to enter into the divine perspective and consider why the crucifixion happened and for whom it, for who it was for. That Jesus did it for me and he did it for you personally. And this is the night that we personalize that. You'll be taking of the elements, uh, personalizing it, uh, in a few moments after the teaching tonight. Now, this brings up an important point, and I know we haven't even begun to read any verses uh, just yet, but when we talk about the crucifixion, people want to know, well, who is responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ? And you could point uh, to Judas, and you say, well, he betrayed Jesus. He sold Jesus out to the religious leaders for uh, 30 pieces of silver. He was called the son of perdition. And you could also point to Pontius Pilate. Pilate's the one who gave the order to have Jesus crucified. So the fault could lie squarely on his shoulders. But what about the Roman soldiers who actually flogged Jesus and those who drove the nails into his hands and to his feet, into his feet and thrust the spear into his side? They bear some of the fault. And there are those who have pointed to the chief priest and the Jews, uh, the Sanhedrin, and even the Jewish nation as a whole that rejected him. After all, in the book of Acts, Peter would say, you have crucified him and put him to death, referring to the Jewish people. But as we're pointing the finger at different people, we also need to point the finger at ourselves. And we have to say, I'm responsible for putting Jesus on the cross because he died for my sins. Jesus said he came to give, to give his life as a ransom for many. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So you and I, because Jesus died 
for the sins of the world. Well, that's us too. I mean, I, I certainly added to the sins of the world. But in asking the question, who crucified Christ, who crucified Jesus, we must deal with another issue, and that is the sovereignty of God. We have to say that the God, God the Father did as well. It was his plan from the beginning. It was no accident. It wasn't like God was in heaven and said, oh no, what happened? Look what happened. They're, look what they're doing to my son. No, there was no surprise. It was his plan. Isaiah 53 predicted the event and said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to make his soul an offering for our sin. That's what Peter understood when he approached the Jews at Jerusalem. And he said concerning Christ in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he said that him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He says, yeah, you did it, but it was also the will of the Father. So the Father gave his Son. It was part of the plan of salvation, the plan of God to present his Son to the world so that he might die the death of every man and every woman so that in that separation, you and I could have life. He took my sin. How did he take my sin? By taking my place on the cross. He took my sin because he took my place. So I don't have to suffer the punishment for my sin, which I could not have paid for anyway had I tried to. It's what we call the vicarious atonement, a substitutionary atonement. He took your place. God the Father had his son die that we might live. We have been studying the gospel of Matthew for, well, actually over a year now. We've been going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And the theme of the Gospel of Matthew, I've called the Christ the King. The Gospel of Matthew points to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as the King. And our title tonight is The King on the Cross. And we're going to go through all the events that take place uh, that begin in verse 27. So Jesus has already been arrested. And verse 26 shows us that Pontius Pilate has released Barnabas And he's taken Jesus to be crucified, where we now see the torture of the king, beginning in verse 27, if you would read along with me, where it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison, that would have been about 600 men, gathered a garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. This is probably one of the robes of the soldiers that they took, one of the Roman soldiers' robes, and draped it on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified." Everything was done here. It was intended to humiliate Jesus. The Jewish rulers had already mocked Jesus as the Messiah. Now the Roman powers come along and they mock him as the king. The scarlet robe was intended to be this cruel irony, uh, being a king. So they're mocking him as that, as being a king. When a criminal is handed over to Roman soldiers for capital punishment, like crucifixion, they would often first toy with the victim, 
the, the victim. They would play games, as it were, to, to mess with them. And one of the games was actually called the king's game. The idea of the crown of thorns was part of this king's game. The reed was to represent a staff of the staff or a scepter of a king. And then, of course, the robe. All of this was part of the king's game. And then after being beaten and whipped and mocked, Jesus was led away to be crucified. And like most victims of crucifixion, he was forced to carry the wood that he would hang upon. The weight of the entire cross was typically 300 pounds. So the victim only carried just the crossbar, uh, that's, which weighed 75 to 125 pounds. So that's what they would carry. And when the victim carried the crossbar, he would be stripped naked and his hands were often tied to the wood. The upright beam of the cross, that was usually permanently fixed in a visible place outside the city walls, beside a major road. So it was easily seen. It was a place where everyone would see it and be intimidated by it. And the criminal was led to the scene of the crucifixion by the longest route possible so that as many people as possible would see it and take heed from this gruesome sight. That would be a deterrent, no less, obviously. When Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, this is exactly the scene he had in mind. So we see first the torture of the king, then we come to the crucifixion of the king, beginning in verse 32. It says, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, this, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Jesus refused any numbing agent, any numbing drug. He chose to face all of the spiritual and physical terror of the cross with all of his senses alert. He wanted to experience all of this. Now, Golgotha, that's the Hebrew name. It means skull. Uh, the Greek name is cranion, where we get the word cranium. The Latin name was Calvaria, where we get the name of our church, Calvary. It's all, they all mean the same thing. Skull. That's because where Jesus was crucified, it looked like a skull. He was crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull. And then they crucified him, verse 35. It says, Matthew simply says, they crucified him. He doesn't describe crucifixion to anyone reading this in his day. They knew what it was. So he just simply states this. If there were a movie made that gave an accurate, full depiction of crucifixion, it would be limited to adult audiences. It would be rated MA for mature audiences only. Uh, the Passion of the Christ, which was out, I guess that's been over a decade now, that came the closest. But even then, if you've seen that, even then at points, it just, it's like, okay, we get the idea. You can stop showing us that. It was an intense horror. It was total brutality. We get our English word excruciating from the Roman word out of the cross. That's where it comes from. 
Crucifixion was so brutal that people typically died of asphyxiation. They're on the cross and they're held there uh, with spikes that would go through the the wrist, the ra- between the radius and the ulna. So basically, your arm would be like a hook keeping you on the cross. Uh, that's how it would go through your hands. Uh, then the spike through the feet. Uh, that would usually be put with your feet sideways through the heel bone, and it was driven all the way into the wood. So your, your feet are sideways as you're on the cross. So the legs are kind of off to the side, and it's a twisted position where the only way you could get air, because your pectoralis muscles would become paralyzed, your diaphragm would become paralyzed, so the only way to get air would be to raise yourself up and you're sideways, pushing your heels down with a nail through your heels, and you'd get a breath in, and then you would let it out and go down and then push up again to breathe. That's why the Roman soldiers, just to relieve the tension, would eventually break the legs uh, of the victims so they would go ahead and die quickly because they would not be able to breathe any longer. They were going to do that with Jesus, but they discovered that he had died earlier than they expected. He was already dead, hence the, the spear thrust through his side. But they did break the legs of the criminals on his left and on his right. But Matthew, he spares us all the gory descriptions of Jesus' physical agony, and he simply says, then they crucified him. But in all of this, Jesus did not suffer as the victim of his circumstances. He was in control. Jesus said of his life in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. It is terrible to be forced to endure such torture, but to freely choose it out of love That's just beyond remarkable. I mean, can we ever doubt the love of God when you recognize what he did and why he did it? The pain, the suffering he went through? Has he not gone to the most extreme length to demonstrate that love? We'll continue, verse 35. They crucified him and they divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And in John, his gospel, we read that the religious leaders objected to that title. I mean, that was offensive to them, the idea that Jesus was the King of the Jews. Yet Pontius Pilate would not change it. He says, hey, what I've written, I've written. There it is. He just left it there. Verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Don't miss that point. They're actually admitting he saved people. They said it right there. They knew of his miracles. They were undisputed. They couldn't refute that. Uh, They knew of his reputation. 
But they continue, verse 42, If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So they mocked Jesus for who he really was and who he is. They mocked him as the Savior. They mocked him as a king. They mocked him as the Son of God. They're, actually, they're acting as if Jesus did what they said, then, then they might believe in him. Yet it is precisely because he did not save himself that he can save others. Love kept Jesus on the cross, not the nails. Jesus did something greater than come down from the cross. He died and he rose again. He rose from the dead. Yet they didn't believe even then. Well, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And according to Mark 15, we can estimate that Jesus hung on the cross for about six hours between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. The first three hours of the ordeal were in normal daylight, so everyone could see that this is, in fact, Jesus on the cross. There's no mistake who this is, and that he wasn't replaced by an imposter or anything like that. And then there were three hours of darkness over all the land. Now, this darkness was especially remarkable because it happened during a full moon, during which time, Passover was always held, and during a full moon, it is impossible for there to be a natural eclipse of the sun. That would have to be in a new moon for a full solar eclipse. So this is a supernatural event that took place. This defies all natural events. And there is significant historical evidence for this unusual darkness Origin and Eusebius uh, quoted from Phlegon, who was a Roman historian, in which he made mention of an extraordinary solar eclipse as well as the earthquake about the time of the crucifixion. Later, Tertullian, who was also an early church historian and biographer, he writes to a Roman saying about the darkness, he says, which is written about in your annals and archived in your own history until this very day. And then there's also something interesting found in a supposed letter from Pontius Pilate to Tiberius Caesar, assuming that Tiberius knew, uh, he's in Rome, but that he knew about the darkness that was pervasive, uh, suggesting that perhaps this was a worldwide event or certainly a regional event. Several different historical sources acknowledge that there was darkness over the land, and it says it was there for three hours. And then, verse 46, about the ninth hour, so that would be three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time in the synoptic gospels where Jesus addressed God without calling him father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had known great pain and suffering, both physical and emotional, during his life. Yet he never had known separation from his father. He had never known that. And at this moment, 
He experienced something he had never experienced before. And there was a significant sense in which Jesus rightly felt forsaken by the Father at this particular moment. People had forsaken him, but Jesus had never experienced the Father turning away until now. And here, as the weight of the sin, of all of our sin, is placed on his shoulders, the Father turned his face away for that moment when a holy transaction took place. God the Father regarded God the Son as if he were the sinner. As Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. Yet Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the, the Father's fellowship, but the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute, as he was a substitute for sinful humanity. As horrible as this was, it fulfilled God's good and loving plan of redemption. Therefore, Isaiah could say in Isaiah 53 verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So this awesome spiritual transaction took place. God the Father laid upon God the Son all of the guilt and wrath our sin deserved. And he bore it in himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. As horrible as the physical suffering of Jesus was, this spiritual suffering, the act of being judged for sin in our place, was what Jesus really dreaded about the cross. It's, but it's what he knew he would face. This was the cup. This was the cup of God's righteous wrath that he trembled at drinking on the cross. Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury, and he did it so we would not have to drink the cup. Jesus felt it, and then he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfilling Psalm chapter 22. He's quoting that psalm. And in quoting Psalm 22 verse 1, he is declaring his fulfillment of that prophecy in Psalm 22 in both all of its agony and its exaltation. Continuing on, verse 47 it says, some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. They're, they're totally misunderstanding. Jesus was speaking in Aramaic when he cried out from the cross. So sadly, Jesus was misunderstood and mocked until the very end. So we've seen the torture of the king, we've seen the crucifixion of the king, and now we come to the death of the king there in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now Matthew just says he yelled something. He doesn't tell us what he yelled, what he cried out, but John's gospel tells us exactly what Jesus cried out. In John 19, beginning of verse 29, it says, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put, on, put it on hyssop, and put it in his mouth. 
That was to basically to wet his lips so he could even speak at this point. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That's what Jesus cried out. It's just one word in the Greek language, tetelestai. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. A servant would say to his master, once he had completed his assignment, he completed his task, he would say, tetelestai. When he, when he had done, he would go to his master and tell him that. The job is done. Tetelestai. And that's what Jesus cried out with this loud voice on the cross. Tetelestai, it is finished. So this is not a cry of defeat. This is a victory cry. Jesus is not a victim. He is a victor declaring it's done. It is finished. The task is now complete. And so he gave up his spirit. Matthew says he yielded up his spirit. Jesus is on the cross, and he says to his own spirit, you can go now. The time is now. You can go. Understand, Jesus died voluntarily, not from physical exhaustion. He was totally in control. He could not die until he was ready and yielded up his spirit. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, that no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. So it was time. The transaction was complete. Our debt was paid in full, and the task was completed. And now we see the immediate results of Jesus' death in the very next verse, uh, verse 51 Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil was this huge curtain, about 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and it was about four to five inches thick, extremely thick. It's what separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. It was a vivid demonstration of the separation between God and man, this veil. And notice it was torn uh, not bottom to top, but top to bottom, implying that only God could tear that veil, that he tore it. God tore the veil. With all the courts around the temple, the wall of separation uh, between God and man, that system had one message, keep out. You can't come in, keep out. But with the tearing of the veil, God was saying, come in. There's no more separation. I'm removing all of the previous barriers that kept you from close intimacy with me. Before, only one person, only one high priest on one day of the year could enjoy that presence of God. Now he's saying you can enjoy it all year long. And you can all enjoy it. Come in. The veil of the temple was torn in two and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. So nature itself was shaken by the death of the Son of God. Verse 52, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I know you're looking at that like, what? What is he saying? What is Matthew getting at? Why is he bringing this up? I admit, this is, this is a bizarre passage of Scripture. 
But notice a few things, what we can know about what's happening here. It doesn't say all the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, but many of those who had died were raised, as if to say God selectively raised up some Old Testament Testament believers who had died and they're awaiting resurrection. I take this as being a one-time occurrence, but God raised them up and they walked around Jerusalem. Why? What was this all about? I believe God is demonstrating that he had conquered death itself, not just Jesus' death. He conquered death itself. God is showing a preview of coming attractions that just as God raised up Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise up other people as well to show this is what's going to happen to you one day. There's going to be a resurrection. That's really all I can say about this at this time because it's, it's so bizarre. It's one of those things that you, it's hard to wrap your head around. Verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This centurion had supervised the uh, the deaths of hundreds of other crucifixions. But he knew there's something different about Jesus. There's something unique about Jesus. And it seems that he's the first convert after the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, Luke's account says the centurion saw what had happened and he glorified God. This centurion had seen it all. He he had done it all. And he'd seen men die many, many times. But in seeing Jesus die and the earthquake and all that was happening, he glorified God and he believed. He declared, this must be the Son of God. What an awesome thought. Verse 55, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So these women were with Jesus and ministering to Jesus. In what way were they doing that? Well, Luke chapter 8 tells us they provided out of their substance. Uh, That is, they gave financial support. And as Jesus was ministering in Galilee, they probably followed along Jesus and the disciples, and they uh, took care of things, cooking, cleaning, helping, ministering from their finances in order to help Jesus and support the ministry. There were practical needs, which Jesus didn't do miracles all the time. He could have, but he allowed people to serve in that way. In very, in very practical ways. And notice the last woman mentioned is the mother of Zebedee's sons, uh, James and John. And do you remember the request she had for Jesus before the crucifixion? Jesus, can my son sit at your right hand and your left hand in, in the kingdom? And Jesus said, he didn't reply to her. He told James and John, guys, you don't know what you're asking. You, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. And they said, yeah. (laughs) They said, yeah, we can do that. Jesus was speaking of the suffering and death on the cross. And she's hearing, she's probably remembering those words right about this time. Like, oh, this is what he meant. So we have the death, the crucifixion of the king 
And finally, we have the burial of the king, beginning in verse 57. It says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Since the Roman execution, uh, since this was a Roman execution, permission by the Roman government was needed to, to be obtained in order to get the body. So Joseph of Arimathea, he steps in and he owns a tomb right there in Jerusalem. Typically when someone died, it was the responsibility of the family or, a close, or close friends to take the body and to bury it. And the way burials were done uh, were by burying the body above ground in a rock cave or a tomb, uh, a sepulcher. It was a, a large area where more than one body could be laid. And if you didn't have your own tomb, you would occupy that grave place with your entire family for generations. And you, well, how, how would you do that for generations? I mean, aren't the bodies going to stack up? Well, your, your forefathers, your ancestors were buried in there and they would be wrapped up. But after a while, the flesh would decay and then the bones would be left. And what they would do is they'd go in and collect the bones, put them in a small box called an ossuary, and they would just condense it down to this small box and sort of push it to the back. And they would just keep doing that with, with each generation, and you'd have room for the new bodies. So generations of bodies could be stored there, but this was a new tomb uh, that Joseph owned. It was going to be for him, probably for his family, but he gave it to Jesus, fulfilling the prediction of Isaiah chapter 53 that said that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors when he died, but buried with the rich upon his death. It was predicted. So Jesus was crucified between two criminals. He was taken off the cross and placed in a rich man's tomb. Fulfilling prophecy. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 61. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation. We'll stop there. So the next day would be for us Saturday. It was the Sabbath. The day of preparation was the day when you would prepare for the Sabbath, and that was Friday, uh, Friday evening at sunset. That would be when Sabbath begins from Friday night sunset to Saturday night sunset. So up before that on Friday, all of these preparations are being made. But the day after Jesus died, it says, continuing verse 62, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Jesus' enemies remembered that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. But his friends and his disciples had forgotten about that, that he predicted his own resurrection. That's amazing. But notice they said to, to Pilate, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, this statement verifies that Jesus is dead. They knew he was dead. They didn't believe in what's called the swoon theory, uh, that 
it's a conspiracy theory that Jesus never really died, that he just swooned on the cross. And somehow when he was laid in the tomb, that he was, felt the cool breeze and was refreshed and revived. Never mind that he had been crucified, tortured, and had a spear thrust through his side, but that was a theory. But they didn't believe that theory. They said, while he was still alive. Therefore, verse 64, therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So in their mind, the first deception was his claim to be the Messiah, and the second or the last deception would be that someone would say, well, he rose from the dead. Well, Pilate said to them in verse 65, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. It's like, okay, here, take a guard. I'm granting you a Roman guard that would have been about between 10 and 16 armed soldiers. It says, make it as secure as you can. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. The stone that the soldiers rolled in front of the tomb, it was about two tons. It was round and it was rolled into a channel. And the channel was on an incline, so the stone would be rolled down into this channel, so it was definitely secure. The only way you could move that two-ton stone would be to move it uphill, which means you would have to have a lever of some kind and a lot of people to move it. So there's between 10 and 16 trained, well-armed Roman soldiers guarding that to keep that from happening. And then there's, so there's the stone, and then there is a seal. For a Roman seal, you would have this clay pack on one side of the, st- the stone and a clay pack on the other side of the stone with a signet ring or a stamp impression that was pushed into the clay that bore the seal of the Roman government. And then a rope would be placed between those two seals. So if anyone broke the seal, well, that was the death penalty by the Roman government. Unless you had permission to break that, that was the death penalty. So they made this very secure. Jesus is secured inside this tomb. And all of these security measures only serve to underscore the fact of the resurrection. All of these things that Matthew records only support the fact that Jesus was dead, that he was buried, that he was secured in the tomb. If Jesus' tomb was unguarded, it could be said that someone or a group of people came and stole the body. And it would be difficult to refute that. Yet because the tomb was so well guarded, we can be certain that his body was not stolen. There are armed soldiers. There's a two-ton stone rolled downhill into this channel. There were clay packs with the Roman seal, which meant death to anyone who breaks them. So I don't think so. I don't think that would be a valid argument. You remove that doubt completely here. So I'm glad Matthew recorded what the Jewish leaders wanted because it dispels so many of those false claims against Jesus' death and his burial, and then later his resurrection. So tonight, we're going to end right here. Sunday, we'll, we'll, we'll continue on in chapter 28. But we've seen the king has been tortured. 
He's been crucified. He died on the cross, and he was buried, and he was secured in the tomb. 